Welcome back to the My Entertainment World podcast. I have returned to my friend Andrew Patty because once again, it is Star Wars season. So if you have not caught our previous installment of this, like, sort of, I guess, series, um, you could definitely go do that on our podcast page, myentertainmentworld.ca slash podcast and on iTunes. Uh, be sure to subscribe there. There you can find all of our thoughts about Force Awakens and the, the franchise in general and where we're going from here, which brings us to Rogue One. So I brought Andrew back on board to talk about the latest Star Wars movie, the ostensible salt standalone episode, which was not standalone at all. Um, no, we'll get that to that in a minute. <laughs> so, okay, Andrew, what'd you think of the movie? Okay, um, so personally, I, this is just me. I totally loved it. I thought it was the best Star Wars movie we've had since 1983, um, and I'm going to stand by that because I thought it did a lot of things right um, and is an example of great fan service. This was definitely fan service, um, and there was a few parts of it that were kind of cringeworthy, kind of stupid, but overall, um, they nailed it, and I didn't think they were going to do it because it started off a lot differently than all the other ones, and I'm like... This can be okay, maybe, and it blew me away. Really? So I yeah, thought the really first did. half was unbelievably boring. I hated okay. it with the fi- with a fiery passion. Okay, um, really. But then, as as soon as it was, it was like there was a dividing line, right? In the, I don't know if it was the middle. I didn't check my watch, but it felt like an eternity to get to this place. But there was a dividing line. When she gets rejected by the council, they refuse to help her. And then Cassian has that speech, the speech that to me made the entire film and elevated Rogue One past your standard sort of fairy, fairly simple good versus evil Star Wars thing and gave it some interesting themes. Um, Cassian's speech about how rebellions do bad things. I thought that was incredible. And from that one moment on, I loved everything else. It was an amazing caper, really fun. I loved that they killed everybody. I understand Me that too. it had a oh lot to do with just making, like, explaining why those characters aren't around in the original trilogy. It, so it was necessary, but I also just loved that they did it, uh, thematically speaking. But it was amazing because before that, it was so boring. I didn't know who anybody was, I didn't care. I learned basically no character names except for Cassian. And, and yet, that second half was so wonderful that I, I'm, it's sort of coming out in the middle. Like I'm getting a sort of average grade out of it ultimately because of that first half, but it's sort of a weird tale of two films. Well, the way I see it is I agree with you that it definitely started off a little slow. Um, but like every Star Wars movie, it's divided into three acts. So I don't want, I don't want to, I'm hesitant to just cut it in half because I would say it's really three separate chunks uh, you know, the first chunk being pretty much, uh, you know, setting it up and meeting um, Forrest Whitaker's character and, you know, es- establishing what needs to be done. Uh, the second half would be essentially when they go to, I think, Edu or Edu, e- e- right. uh, the, yeah. the planet where her dad dies, um, essentially. And then the third act would just be the battle. Um, Certainly. And, and, that, and that's, cla- um, that's classic film structure. But yeah. I felt like, that first, well, then in that case, I only liked the third act because really? okay. I thought I, I thought Edu really or whatever was also unbelievably boring. <laughs> oh, I didn't think that at all. But um, I, I actually really liked Edu or Edu, Edu, whatever it's called. Um, I thought that was uh, I thought it was just really good to watch because um, 
one, they they weren't doing the classic Disney move of everybody's getting along um, until the very very end of it. So they they had what they had was you know um, they built up a team like they do in every Star Wars movie, and they made sure they don't make it like they have conflicting goals. You know what I really liked about uh, Cassian, um, as you you know you mentioned his speech. What I really liked about Cassian was um, he kind of represented. Um, the darker side of the rebellion, the, the fact that the rebellion is not all good guys, you know, mm-hmm. like he was about to snipe, um, Galen, uh, the, uh, her dad. Um, and the very first scene we meet him in, even he's like, he, what is he? He kills that informant guy in just like cold blood, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm like, Oh, is this the, is this a protagonist? Is this the person we're supposed to get behind? Interesting choice. Okay. Um, I agree that like it definitely started out a little slow and I was like, wondering where it was going. It like there didn't seem to be much happening besides setup and setup and setup, but I trusted it, you know, I kind of kept with it and I definitely think it paid off. Yeah. Well, Diego Luna is such an intriguing performer too. And Felicity Jones is a total gem, but I got to say I have no idea who Jin is or Really, who Jin is? <laughs> like, I know yeah. technically, you know, she's the daughter of the scientist who made the Death Star, blah, blah, blah. But I just, I didn't, I barely knew her name by the end. Like, I didn't know anybody other than Cassian. And how do you feel about the way that the ensemble was constructed and how much time was devoted to each of the characters? And do you know their names? I'm not off the top of my head, no, <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, but here's the thing, I, um, I thought... Overall, I really liked the ensemble, but there was a few choice things they could have, like that I personally would have done differently. Um, uh, so I guess we can go through them one by one um, if you want. First of all, I my favorite was probably uh, Cassian. Yeah, I um, think he's probably everyone's the, favorite, right? Oh, totally. Because yeah. he's kind of like well, he's kind of like a Han Solo standard, which is fine because right. it's a Star Wars movie, and it is a little bit templatized, which I don't necessarily mind. But this one particular movie did break that template in a lot of important ways, I thought. Anyway, um, yeah, so I, I totally thought Cassian was probably the best, um, just in terms of, you know, you know, his own conflict, you know, and, you know, even if he didn't know what to do most of the time, because he's like, yeah, it's my job to snipe Galen, but should I take the shot? I don't know. I don't know. He kept going back and forth. It was really interesting. Um, and I, uh, as for Jin, you're kind of right in terms of like, I thought she was a fine protagonist, but like I, I thought, like I thought I was going to like really dislike her um, going to the movie. And I, I came out kind of like, she's fine. She's totally passable. She's, you know, why did you think um, you were going to dislike she's what her? I would... Okay. So here's the thing. So in the, in the trailer, um, in the, in the trailer, uh, there was a really, really bad line that they cut. I'm really glad they cut it, but she's talking to Mon Mothma um, during like act one and Mon Mothma, Mon Mothma, by the way, you know who Mon Mothma is like the, uh, the woman all in white, she's the head of rebellion. Never seen her before in my life. Okay. Mon Mothma was, uh, she was like a bit part in return of the Jedi, but, um, she's essentially in charge of the rebellion. She's, you know, the, the head of it essentially. Um, so she's talking to Mon Mothma and there's like, there's a line in there. It's like, I'm a rebel. I rebel. That was Ew. in the trailer. <laughs> yes, and that was terrible. <laughs> I was like, it was really terrible. I was like, I groaned. I was like, Oh man, it's going to be terrible. And it was, it was delivered poorly. It didn't really fit. Um, and you know, I'm like, 
is this going to be her entire character arc? And so I was really, and you know, well, like, so go ahead. For, sorry, with, finish oh, your sentence. Yeah. What they did with it, you know, they gave her, they gave her, you know, severe daddy issues. They gave her, they gave her, you know, uh, they, they, they treated her as a character that was like, you know, yearning for her, like her, a father figure essentially. Cause she didn't have that. She didn't have that growing up and she saw her mom die and she was just kind of like out there alone for, I guess, the better part of a decade. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it kind of like, it's kind of like urchin from the streets kind of like story or like a character arc that they went with. And that worked, I thought. Okay. So, so two points. So f- first I want to talk a little bit about the script and lines like I'm a rebel, I rebel. Um, and then we'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about Jin. Um, but the lines like I'm a rebel, I'm rebel to me don't, that didn't surprise me at all from Chris fights whites fights. I don't know how to say his name, but he's the guy who he's the screenwriter and he wrote the screenplay of Cinderella. Um, and this makes perfect sense to me because while I loved the Cinderella movie, I'm like the one person who's a staunch defender of the live action Cinderella movie. Basically the whole film was based around a single sentence and it was have courage and be kind. This was the, the slogan of Cinderella, essentially. And the entire yeah. story and the script were, were built up around that. Here you can see the exact no same thing happen with rebellions are built but, on hope. Well, no. Yeah, it was about hope. It was like, you know, a rebellion needs hope, et cetera, et cetera. And they kept saying that over and over again. Like, here's the message, guys. And I was kind of hitting you over the head with a hammer. But right. I, like, I, you know, I rolled like, my – I love that sentence. That's a great sentence. You extrapolate that into our current world and tell people that rebellions are built on hope. And all of a sudden, eyes are opened and everyone feels hopeful again. It's a, it's a beautiful little thing. And if it was a single sentence – in fact, if we had left it – where Diego Luna said it, and he kind of said it under his breath. He just said it in one kind of throwaway thing. We're cool. But the fact that it came back over and over and over again, and it became this, like, catchphrase, was so cheesy and weird. And I, I and know. I, and totally dragged down the film, I thought. And that, that sort of construction, that sort of um, cheesy, forced thing, was really a, a big problem for me. And when I wasn't enjoying the movie, that's the kind of thing that made me feel like it was the worst movie I'd ever seen. When I was really? enjoying the movie, when I, when I, well, it wasn't the worst movie I've ever seen. The worst movie I've ever seen is Jurassic World. End of story. But it okay, was not, the, it, in the part where I did enjoy the movie, that kind of stuff slid right by me. I didn't care. But that, it, it's really that sort of ridiculous trait over, uh, over-processed thing that makes you very aware that these are now Disney films and ah, it just, it really got on my nerves. Hope is, but that's the thing. On hope. So I know, but that, that's why they did a lot of things that were very un-Disney like, for example, they got the band, they got this group all together and you know, they're, they, by the act three, they finally got them all unified working as one unit and then they killed everybody. I've never seen any movie or like, any Disney movie, at least, do something like that before. Certainly. Which is why I kind of excuse it, you know? No. Like, you're right. It is, it is like, really paper thin. But, I mean, this is a Star Wars movie. I mean, you can go back to the originals and tear them apart, too, if you really want oh, to. Oh, certainly. You know? Yeah. And like, I also felt I had a real problem with K2SO, or whatever his name is, um, who I did not think was funny at all. 
I thought his, his jokes were terrible. And I, but I do think there is this idea that you can throw Alan Tudyk at a problem and he'll just fix it. And, and yeah. it doesn't matter who your performer is if they're not saying anything interesting. And that's, that was one of my things with, like, I really enjoyed Force Awakens. And I'm not, to reiterate, I didn't say this off the top, but anyone who listened to our previous episode knows this, that I'm not, and you can probably tell by now, I'm not a Star Wars person. I've seen the original trilogy once in their original iterations on VHS before he started tampering. And then I never saw the prequels and I saw Force Awakens in theaters and that's sort of it. Um, So when I saw Force Awakens, it was very much as a standalone action adventure movie. And I thought it was a hoot and a half because it was really funny. And we talked a lot about the chemistry that was happening and character development. It was, it was just a really fun movie. And this was such a serious movie that I feel like you did have to invest a little bit more in the world and in the mythology of the Star Wars universe. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that there wasn't anyone on screen. There were some charismatic people, but there wasn't like, you know, Han Solo or or even a, a, poor Carrie Fisher who died literally today. Um, Three hours ago? Yeah. Like yeah. Though, oh my By God. the way, yeah, as an aside, yeah, we're, we – Found out, I think, three or four hours ago that she died today. That sucks. Yeah. That was terrible, you know? And, like, I don't know. Yeah. But just, yeah, hearing hearing about that was just like, oh, man, today. Yeah. And yeah. we can maybe talk about that at the end, where the franchise goes without Carrie Fisher. Um, but returning, but she was such a powerhouse and such a, a compelling screen presence as was uh, Harrison Ford, as actually were John Boyega and, um, oh my gosh. Daisy Ridley. Thank you. Um, you know, and, um, I gotcha. Which, which is not to speak of, even, even touch on Oscar Isaac, but the, these people, and it wasn't very funny and there wasn't that sort of sparkling chemistry happening. So I just didn't have the same, the same sense of fun. Um, not to say, cause this is obviously a darker, darker movie. It wasn't supposed to necessarily be fun, but I was supposed to like connect with these people and care about them. And we didn't have any of that sort of personalization. And I think a lot of that does come from honest humor and chemistry. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't necessarily know. Um, I don't know. Like you have a point there, but I mean, I think it's just a much more dire situation really. Uh, and th- this movie was designed to not be – it was designed to be more urgent. It was designed to be an urgent action movie, whereas something like The Force Awakens was uh, a soft reboot. You know, It was supposed to feel like A New Hope and you know, it, like more of a fun action-adventure movie as opposed to um, you know, like edge-of-your-seat suspense. And I thought that was the difference between the two of them. Did you so feel like this I, was edge-of-your-seat suspense though? Because until they started I dying, it, I didn't care. I think it was a linear buildup. I think here's a, here's the way I put it. Like I agree that the first act could have been like a little bit more solid, but the way the way I felt was it got progressively better and better as it goes along. And by the time I got to that third act, I didn't care. I was having so much fun, and it was really the Star Wars movie I wanted to see. I thought it hit on a lot of really really important marks. Um, and as for like the ensemble, as for the cast. Um, I mean, we can, like if you want to go through them one by one. I mean, I think we've talked about Jin and Cassian, um, but as for you know Alan Tudyk's droid character, was it K K two S O? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, you're right. He didn't like, he wasn't that funny. You're right. I, I agree. I don't think he was supposed to, be. I think he was supposed to be like, um, he was supposed to be funny. What? He was supposed to be funny. Well, okay. Then you're right. He wasn't, but I didn't really mind that he wasn't because I, <laughs> I wasn't looking at this movie for comedy. You know, I right. was looking at this movie for like, you know, a sense of like, to build up suspense, you know, and it did that, I think. And, and so the droid character didn't really hold anything back for me, but it's not something like, you know, I, I'm not fawning over him either. He, he did a fine job. I thought. Right. Now, what about some of these others? A lot of them I felt like, especially Baze, I felt like showed up and I was supposed to know who that was already. Is that true? Um, so it depends. All right. So, um, are we talking about the protagonists, like the, the rest of the team? Or are we talking about others like people like Tarkin? Well, cer- certainly the villains, I understand that those are, uh, in fact, they were, well, at least one of them was CGI'd to look exactly like the original actor, which was unbelievable. Um, yeah. but so for example, his big introduction and what, and we're talking about the character who's, I forget his actor's name it was something henry Peter. He, no so i think okay so i think you're talking about um grand moff tarkin i am and cushing well no so he he wasn't played by peter cushing is yes. is the thing right. though um i believe peter cushing might be dead and at the very least he's certainly old he, he's dead um yes. so he he so, was played by i'm looking for his actor's name it was something henry um, it but was he Guy Henry. Guy Henry. And he was made to look identical to Peter Cushing. And that's incredible CGI. The thing is, um, as is the moment at the end, which we will touch on in a moment. But the thing is, if you don't know who that like I recognized him vaguely, um, but it doesn't matter to me that that it's being revealed to be this sort of famous dark character. Like I, I didn't care. And yet the score was like, this is a big moment. This is a big moment. And then this guy turns around and to me who doesn't know Peter Cushing, doesn't really know who people are care in any way is like, Oh look, it's a guy. But the score was like, pay attention to this. This is impressive. And it drove me crazy because I don't like when they tell me what to do. Yeah, I, yeah, that's the thing. I think this movie was, you know, this movie was made for for me, and the Force Awakens is made for you because I totally bought into that moment. I was, yeah. I, I, I had heard that um, they did some kind of CGI face mapping to make Tarkin look like the old Peter Cushing, like his old actor. Um, but um, yeah, I, it really built it up because he acted, sounded, and they gave him a whole set of new lines, and it was, I thought it was really impressive, and also. Um, kind of interesting because it's going to start raising like some kind of, you know, ethical questions on whether they're allowed to do stuff like this. I mean, Tarkin or sorry, Peter Cushing died shortly after a new hope came out and he never signed on for this film, but he's a pretty major character in it. At least his face is, you know? Yeah. I wonder how that works in terms of like, does his estate get money? Yeah. I don't know. And like, I mean, I assume they had like family, his family's permission, but it, it's like we can do this now. Uh, like, I think this is the first movie that I've actually seen where I, it was about, I would say, like almost ninety, like ninety five percent there. You know, there was a few like things that were a little bit uncanny valley about it. There was a few things that were like like minor twitches that I can't really pick up on that made him look CGI, but. I mean, it's terrifying technology if you think about it in terms of like we are currently living in a sci-fi world. Like what yeah. the things if they can make someone who 
is dead, so obviously could not consent to being in the film, didn't film a single piece of footage for this, they can use another actor and make it look like Peter Cushing is doing all these things. Imagine the applications of that in terms of, like, I don't know, making a an alibi video or a blackmail video. Or, mm-hmm. like, the, the applications are potentially terrifying <laughs> of this, like... Yeah, it's cool in Star Wars, but it's it's not cool technology, guys. That's terrifying. I don't know. So that's very that's very um, you know like doomsday scenario kind of stuff. And I'm not thinking like it's really that took a team of hundreds of people to do just to work on that one guy's face, you know. Um, so uh-huh. I'm not thinking about it from that. I'm thinking about it from like an ethical perspective of like what if what if this movie what would people didn't like. Tarkin's performance in this movie? What if people didn't like the new actor playing Tarkin's with the old Tarkin's face on it, you know? Right. Um, it's going to go as part of Peter Cushing's, Peter Cushing's legacy. legacy. Yeah. Yeah. You know? it, and they it, did the same thing. It wasn't just Peter Cushing. They did this for Red and Gold Leader, too. And Carrie Fisher, Ash will get to later, you know? Like, yeah, it was... I thought it was great. I thought it was really, really cool to watch. But I was, I was, I was wondering, like, oh... We can do this now. This is this is it. Um, and I just thought, like, I don't, I don't know. I like. I I'm really glad they made, made this movie the way it was. But you're right. It is a it is a strange, strange technology that we've come really close to. You know. Well, it is, and it, like if you know, it would take many years and a huge budget. But it, this sort of opens the door. You could potentially make a new Humphrey Bogart movie. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. It, it, I could see it them them doing basically like how you now see um, like Ja Rule was on the Hamilton mixtape and appeared at the concert. Like the was he I dead? Or is that not yeah, is he okay. dead? I don't know. Tupac was at Coachella, for example. Yes. Okay, good. That's now I can associate. Right. So yeah, like he was. That was crazy. We might be seeing now like people cuz so so Tupac played Coachella in place of a current musician. Somebody didn't get that slot because they gave it to Tupac. So yeah. what are we doing now where we could potentially move forward into a film landscape that is actively moving backwards? It's sort of a strange reality where we we're, we're reconstructing and and fitting things into what they once were and and making new things out of old things when they could have made a new character. Well, they honestly couldn't. So if they wanted to tell the story of um, leading up to the very moment a, a New Hope began, if they wanted to tell, you know, what happened the previous three days before, you know, the beginning of episode four, and there's going to be conflicts between the Rebellion and the Empire, then we're going to be wondering where people like Grandma Tarkin are and... Um, and Darth Vader. And they did make a new character. The main villain in this, um, I forget his name, uh, Admiral Raddus, I believe. He was he was the new character. He was the new, um, you know, the guy who was pretty much in charge of building the Death Star. Who is um, Admiral? Taken- no, Admiral Raddus. Isn't Admiral Radness, Raddus the frog guy? The guy with the frog. I was going to ask you about this. There was a character who, who was on the re- rebellion side who looked like a frog. Oh, you're right. Okay, sorry. So- yeah, he, oh, you're talking about the Mon Calamari. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, uh, you're right. He is that. I forget. I you're forget you're talking about you're talking about Ben Mendelsohn's character, the guy in the really silly white cape, right? Yes. Okay, so I had a thought on that because it, it's sort of interesting working within the time period of the original films. It shoehorns us into a 1970s conception of sci-fi, and so some people are going to look stupid because the costumes and things. So poor Ben Mendelsohn, who played. Orson Krennic is his character's name. Looked yes. so silly. I mean, not as silly as the frog guy, but silly. I didn't think it looked that bad. I didn't. I certainly didn't notice it. I mean, if anybody, I thought it was stuck. Like you know, people like Mon Mothma were stuck in you know, like flowing white robes the entire time. Yeah. Like, now was she you know was what? she CGI? Was that a different actress? No, that was a different actress, which is really surprising because what they did. Yeah, I don't know why they did it that way. They. She wasn't CGI. She was a totally new person, and they recast her. And I guess maybe they did that so they could put her on the trailer or something. And oh, like, maybe. Look, we cast some of the old people. You'll like this. But then they bring – my count – I think they, I counted four um, old actors they brought back for this movie that are either dead or, you know, or whatever um, at this point. So – it was just very, like, it was, it was a little bit all over the place in terms of that, but, like, I was pleasantly surprised when they started doing this kind of stuff. Imagine being Guy Henry and getting this, like, big part in Star Wars and, and just not being in it. Well, I'm sure there. they told him that. I'm sure they told him, like, hey, we're not going to show your face. We, we're going to show Peter Cushing's face over your face, but we need you to act like him. I'm sure his entire audition was, like, doing that, you know? That's true. It was probably an impression. It was probably an Andy Circus situation, and they were just, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, fair enough. Okay, so who – talk to me about this Orson Krennic and who how you felt about his – sort of holding it down for the dark side, especially when he had, we had these huge cameos who that of like the famous dark side characters who really sort of overshadowed him. Yeah. And I honestly felt, um, you know, the, the movie needed a victory. That's, that's, I think that's the, the reason he really had to exist because there's no reason governor target or grandma Tarkin couldn't have been the guy the entire time. I thought, mm-hmm. um, like, why couldn't he have been the one who, you know, went and kidnapped uh, Jin's dad? Why couldn't he have been the one who commissioned this entire thing and just kept it? But instead, they introduced this power struggle with this with this guy I thought they kind of set up to kill, um, which was fine. Because, I mean, it was, it was a good victory. It was a fine death. Um, but, it, like, overall, I mean, he was very tertiary, I felt, um, and compared to... The big bads, like as you said, uh, Moff Tarkin and Darth Vader, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go other, back. Other than that, let's go back oh, over to the good guys. Let's start with Saul Guerrero because that was one of those characters who I felt like I was supposed to have more information than I did, knowing I didn't see the prequels. Were there were these people new people or was he, it something? He's else totally new. He's totally yeah. new. Okay, they yeah. did a bad job with that because he. Yeah, they did. They talked about him as if he was this famous legendary character that we'd all been waiting for. No, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're talking about Forrest Whitaker's character here. And he I guess he was just some kind of grizzled old war veteran who was a little bit crazy. Um, and, I mean, they didn't really explain – like, I, like, I don't want to say he was terrible, but like, they didn't really explain like what happened after he finds Jin when she's like 12 or 13 in that like – in that like, you know, 
under that rock essentially after her dad dies like did he raise her or did they did he just leave her on her own and just like let her wander the streets and if so why because like i don't know i mean this guy's supposed to have like you know empathy he's supposed to be a member of the rebellion and yet he just kind of um i felt a little bit off his rocker i guess that's the point but i don't know like his motives didn't make sense to me you know yeah, nothing about him made sense to me. I didn't know where his head was at, what he really believed in. I it almost felt like someone was sent like had sent him to Jin and yet we got basically no explanation. He really he's the sort of character who if he'd been a cameo, if he'd been a someone they brought in from the prequels to do those, you know, he was in what two scenes, three scenes. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And then dispensed with him and didn't want to spend storytelling time on him. That That's an excuse to do that. That's something that makes sense to me. But as it was, I was just like, I must be missing something with this person because I have no idea who he is. And I actually felt the same way about Baze Malbus, who showed up as if he was like a, a big, um, and now I'm here and here's my funny intro line and and that was it. And then we didn't know anything else about him except that he was sort of the sidekick to Donnie Yen's character. Yeah, you're right. The guy with the, uh, the guy with the giant gun that kills like 20 guys at once. Yeah. 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 Just, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't really care about that guy. I mean, like you're right. Him and Donnie Yen were kind of sidekicks. Um, I like Donnie Yen's character. I think he had a really necessary place, um, in world building because one of the, one of the biggest problems that this movie had to do was survive with no Jedi. This is the only Star Wars movie where there's no Jedi. And we, you know, we've always been introduced to like these magical, mystical beings and they were just 30 years or 20 years prior, like kind of everywhere, which is, you know, something that prequels taught us and maybe kind of ruined. Um, And then there's all of a sudden none of them. Um, This guy kind of acted as the bridge between that, you know? Like I thought he was really uh, necessary for world building, if you will, just because like, it, it reintroduced the Jedi as kind of a sorcerer's cult, you know? Um, and, like, this one old blind monk is the only one in this movie that can really use the Force besides Vader. But I thought I liked him. I liked him as a character, and I thought he was pretty interesting. I thought, you know, he... he I didn't like his death that much, but I thought, you know, hey, if he's going to die and we're going to kill everybody, like, give them all their own little you know, end deaths and, you know, it, it kind of worked, but I thought, um, he was one of the more interesting companions in this. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I actually flipped, I, I'm the reverse of your, your opinion there because I found his death very compelling. I mean, it was very classic, you know, the guy who walks out and, and puts himself in danger to pull the lever that needs to be pulled in order to save the world. Um, but his catchphrase again with the catchphrases, uh, that felt very repetitive and annoying at first. By the time we got to that emotional climax, I was like, this is why I've been putting up with this. Because now I'm yeah. like feeling something when he's going to do this. And he's telling himself that he has this protection that we know he doesn't have in order to will himself to go and save the world, even though he knows it'll be, it'll be the destruction of him. Even though that's super trite, I just, it got me. It really, it really did touch my heart. Um, totally. But I, I didn't mind his catchphrase. Uh, wait, I am one with the force and the force is with me or something yes, like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was like 
I thought it was a good buildup, you know, because he kept saying, kept saying it. And you're right, it is kind of obnoxious at points, but like maybe that's the point, you know, because he's surrounded by people that live in a very real and practical world, and this one character is kind of a monk, you know, kind yeah. of, kind of, kind of wizard like, and he's just kind of out of it the entire time, and then eventually he comes into his own and becomes incredibly useful, you know. Yeah, and I'd say he probably had the most grand death of all of the the rebels, except for maybe Jin. But I actually loved uh, Jin, uh, Cassian ends up dying at the same in the same way as Jin. But initially, he just falls off, and they do the classic like surprise, not really dead, here to shoot someone in the back to save you reveal. Um, and I, I did like the very ending with them where they, they died together and it, it was sort of just a hint of maybe slight romance, but they do not go there, which I really appreciated. Yes. Um, totally. But and, I kind of loved this idea of this huge, important, like arguably the the biggest, the most popular character in the movie just sort of falling. And that was it. And it was a total anticlimax and it wasn't a hero's death and it was just a nothing. And then he came back. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I didn't think he was dead for a second when he fell. I was like, okay, they're going to come back. And yeah, I, the ending kind of played out exactly how, how it did or how I expected it to. But you're definitely right about the like the subtle kind of not really a romance that they had. Because one of the things I actually really liked about this movie was there were so many opportunities for her to get really, really stupid. For her to just completely just, you know, jump the shark. And it didn't, you know? And it, it kind of held it together. That ending... Um, you know, uh, that ending uh, where the Death Star, you know, bl- blows up the planet from orbit, essentially. Or not just blows up that part of the planet from orbit. And they're just kind of watching their own death and, like, holding hands on the beach. I'm like, that is a good way to end it. That is, that's how it should go. I think that was perfect. Um, and, uh, you know, another thing, um, you know, speaking of, you know, that entire death scene, one of the things that the creators are really, really um, careful to do is to not overshadow anything that happened in a new hope or you know the original trilogy because that's the one thing they really had to not step on for example um i you know i knew it was about the death star i knew the death star would be a major threat in this movie um don't have a global planet because it kind of diminishes alderaan you know right you, you know you know the original hope uh, sorry a new hope the original movie alderaan explodes and everybody's like oh my god it's the worst thing ever right yes, yes. Okay, cool. Just making sure we're on the same page there. Yeah. Like, they can't diminish that. They can't take that away. So what they do, they say, okay, only blow part of a planet and do that twice. Make the threat real, but don't ruin what the audience already knows. and Don't ruin anything about this universe that we've crafted so carefully 40 years ago. Also, so I thought that was really good. Theoretically, and this is purely theoretical because I think it would be a crazy thing to do. Someone in the future, say you have a kid and you're introducing them to the Star Trek, Star Wars movies. Theoretically, you should be able to start with the first prequel and move them through linearly because depending on the age of the kid, it might just be too much to start with A New Hope and then try and piece it together and and explain that we're that it's not linear. So probably the easiest thing to do is to start at the beginning of like quote unquote time and just move them forward in a chrono- chronological fashion. At which point Keeping that in mind, there should be – it should be logical, the the movement of the piece. So you should be able to watch things in order. And if 
for example, you're watching Rogue One right before New Hope, which I imagine lots of people are going to start doing now. If they do blow up a planet, then the tension is completely released in A New Hope. So one of the things we're dealing with, and this is one of the reasons why, even though they said it was going to be a standalone, it could never be a standalone. And the reason for that is because every single piece of this puzzle is has to exist as a piece of a puzzle. They, there, is, there is no original movie making anymore. Everything well, has to be a part of the greater whole. So I disagree with that in the context of the Star Wars universe because the Star Wars universe is massive. We've only seen, like, what, 80 years worth of it? You know, maybe 70? Um, They they can do stuff from before Phantom Menace that doesn't include anything, like, any Skywalkers whatsoever. Like, if you're going to have a spinoff movie, if you're going to have something that doesn't have Skywalkers in it, like this one, um, then you can do way, way post-Episode nine or in between episodes six and seven, or um, there's actually a really interesting uh, uh, bit of canon that I believe it is canon, um, er, like er, era called the Old Republic era, which is four thousand years before um, the original, the original A New Hope, right. which has built its built up its own massive lore in itself that is totally independent of Star Wars, but they still have lightsabers and they still have like space battles and it's still great. That that's actually true. If we do think of it as a full universe, I think the thing is that we we talk about a universe, but what we're actually dealing with is a franchise. Um, We're we're looking at a very small world uh, with that is a a franchise and everything's connected. If we're actually talking about it as a full universe, you can make a number of completely interconnected movies in the in the way that say Spartacus and the Hurt Locker are both war movies in similar genres set in the same universe, our universe. But those yeah. movies have nothing al- have nothing in common and are separated by hundreds of years and are, are just, you know, you would never think they have anything in common, but they are set in the same universe. So if, if someone were to actually jump really far away from Star Wars, the franchise, to make something set in that universe, it's, it's doable. I don't think Absolutely. it's doable by a major movie studio. Yeah, but like even I mean, certain movies are trying to attempt it. I think. Um, do you see like Harry Potter a billion, the the most recent one? A billion. Harry Potter nine. I oh, think Harry nine. Potter the uh, Fantastic Beasts. Yes, that's one. Yeah, that one exactly. Yes. I mean, that was a prequel to Harry Potter one, and they had some winks and nods to the you know the original uh, like. They had, I think they had, like Grindelwald, right? That was the guy. Yep, Grindelwald's in it. There's a Lestrange in it. Yeah, they talked exactly. about Dumbledore. Yeah, had, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but really, it was its own bit of self-contained canon, and I thought it worked pretty well. I mean, it, I, it wasn't great, but I thought it was pretty good. Yep, know? and that one is, I think, sixty years ahead, like before Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, and if, you know what, if Grindelwald hadn't been introduced, if Dumbledore had been literally just name-checked um, and Lestrange happened, well, I mean, if her last name was anything else, it really is a very self-contained, totally different part of the world, totally different era, all that kind of thing. Except that you get to the end of that movie, there is the big Grindelwald twist, and we're like, oh, this is actually directly tied in to the world of actual Harry Potter, the books, because Grindelwald plays such a huge part in the seventh book that like Mm -hmm. 
it is directly tied in. This is sort of my point. They came close. They know how, they figured out that to do it, you have to go somewhere else and sometime else. But they didn't do it. They can't do it. They they can't help themselves. No, you're right. And the reason is, is because of fan service. And that's what I actually really liked about Rogue One. Because walking out of that theater, I had a very good definition of what good fan service is and what bad fan, bad for, sorry, bad fan service is. And this movie had both of that. I think this movie, um, most of it was pretty good. But um, like one of my favorite little bits of fan service was um, – during that last battle, Red Five dies, um, and Red Five is just an anonymous uh, X-wing pilot. But in A New Hope, which takes place two days later in the Death Star trench run, um, it's Luke's call sign. Luke is Red Five, ah. um, and yeah, nobody's going to notice that, right? Um, but the, yeah, it's like a throwaway. It's a throwaway line. We lost Red Five, but. Why? Okay, so it helps explain why. One, they were really desperate for numbers. They were really desperate for members. And if you knew even a little bit of flying, we're going to give you an X-wing and we're going to send you out this big Death Star thing. Good luck. And two, that explains where he got his call sign. You mm-hmm. know, and that's a little bit of fan service that didn't need to be there, but it helped. Um, it helped what was already canon. You know, it helped improve it. Well, and um, that's a good example because it didn't get in the way. Like it, it didn't get in the you way. Exactly. Can't, you can watch that film and completely miss that, and it doesn't affect your viewing experience at all. Um, but I felt quite strongly that there were lots of things from the prequels, and even from just not remembering A New Hope very well, that I missed, that I was behind on, that I couldn't keep up with the exposition. And that's not movie making. That's maybe really? TV making if you're really stretching it. But yeah, you need to, you need, everything needs to be comprehensible in that one, two hour period. So I, I didn't feel that there were a lot of loose ends, but as I said, I mean, I think but you know your stuff so well. Star Wars movie. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's yeah, the totally. thing. Like, like, I feel like go we ahead. can both agree this is a Star Wars movie for Star Wars fans. And Absolutely. A lot of other people would have felt alienated from it. But that, then again, there was certain things in it that were what I consider bad fan service. Um, for example, um, do you know the the guy that's bugging Luke in the, the Maz Eisley Cantina? The I have the death sentence on 12 systems guy? No. Okay. Well, there's a... Obi-Wan cuts some dude's arm off in a bar and, you know, why not? Um, that's how... That's like during Act 1 of A New Hope. Uh, that guy is in this movie. That guy and his, his friend... Um, they're, they show up in this movie for no reason uh, right before they meet uh, Forrest Whitaker's character. And, you know, they start bothering Jim. That guy doesn't need to be there. That's a wink and nod kind of fan service that's pretty, pretty stupid. And it kind of ruins part of the canon. Because, like, well, how did, that, how did those guys get off the planet just before it blew up, you know? And go to Moss Eisley Cantina and why there? It just makes us wonder, like... There's no point for this. There's no point for these guys to be here, and yet here they are. Same thing with um, R2 and 3PO. Yeah, it's that like they was have so random. Every movie. Yeah. yeah, and there was like a throwaway. There's like a throwaway, like ten second scene with them, like somewhere just before the big battle. And I was like, dude, we don't need to see them. This is a good movie without them. I thought, and they have to just crowbar it in there because they didn't add anything, and that is bad fan service. I thought. So yeah. 
How did you feel about Galen Erso and the reveal of what was up with the Death Star? What that it has that it yeah. So like, is that a thing we knew from the New Hope of like what it was, why that flaw was there, and exactly what it was that allowed them to destroy it? No, not really. Um, So yeah, like the architects, the original architects of the Death Star were never. I don't believe they were ever declared canon. They never said, here's the guys who did it, and they purposely built flaws into it. Um, Yeah, so this actually made a lot of sense because, I mean, if you think about it, it's a pretty glaring flaw. If there's a big exhaust port, like, that can just be blown up by some dumb kid in 1977, you know? This helped explain that. This helped add to that canon, and I thought I liked it a lot, you know? Okay. He was played by uh, Mads Mikkelsen, who is, I mean, in, uh, I think he's from Denmark. In uh, Scandinavia, he is a sort of general movie star. He plays rom-coms and all the uh, big hero characters and all that sort of thing. He's really known in North America as a villain. He's almost always cast as a villain, and most famously, he's Hannibal, Brian Fuller's Hannibal. How do you feel about the casting of such a, like, usually a villain as uh, Galen Erso, who is this sort of not, not total, not total hero. No, I know. Um, well, I thought. I mean, I thought he did a good job because I mean, he wasn't. Yeah, you're right. He wasn't a total hero. He was somewhere in between, uh, good guy and bad guy. Because he did some pretty, you know, he built this heinous, monstrous thing, but he didn't want to. You know, he mm. was he was just trying to be a dad. You know, and that's that's all he that's all he was. And I don't know. I thought he didn't hold anything back. He was a good. He was good good casting is totally like I thought he did a great job honestly and the one person we haven't talked about yet and the reason is because I think he's a little underwritten um is Reese Ahmed who is who played Bodhi Rook who's the pilot who for some reason is referred to just simply as the pilot for almost the entire yes. movie I didn't know his name because <laughs> yeah good all right I have a lot actually to say about him okay really okay go for it yeah so um overall um wasted opportunity because what I really wanted to see was, you know, him kind of having some kind of inner conflict because he committed treason against the Empire. You know, he knew what he was doing. Uh, you know, even if Mads Mikkelsen's character sent him off to go see Forrest Whitaker's character, like, this person knew what was happening. Um, and he should be, you know, he's trying to, like, he should have been trying to hold himself accountable for it, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I really would have liked to see was him not pilot uh, or not pilot Rogue One, but give him an X-wing. He's a pilot, right? I mm-hmm. thought it'd be great if you know give him an X-wing or a Y-wing or something, and he has to go up against his own squadron or something, and then he dies. That could have been his death. And I thought like it was kind of a dull moment that they just kind of didn't like they just didn't follow through on. Um, but overall, I mean, I'm kind of nitpicking there. I think. He was fine. Like, he didn't, you know, it was okay the way the way he went out, you know? Well, and and speak go, going back to what I had said about Cassian's death earlier, about the idea that, and they, he didn't end up dying this way, but the idea that they could kill off somebody by just sort of having him fall. I'd say Bodhi probably had the least glamorous exit. The, he didn't sort of just make a, a strong in-the-moment decision to go forth. He just sort of stayed there and he got blow, blown up. But he didn't have anywhere yeah, else to go. He didn't have an option. Yeah. 
So it was sort of, his was a little bit of an anticlimax, but at a certain point I needed somebody to have an anticlimax. Everybody else was having these big heroic moments. And I liked the idea that someone makes a heroic decision, they're locked into that heroic decision. And then no matter how many times, and, and not that this was explicit in the film, but throughout the mission, they could be like, oh shit, I don't want to make a heroic decision anymore. And not, and their death isn't an active choice. Their death is just something that is a consequence of a heroic decision they made, you know, days earlier, hours earlier, before they really understood that, oh no, this isn't, this isn't going to work. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, all of that's a very good point. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I, I I think, um, you know, to have, to have a decision, like, I, I guess I agree that it's a good thing as death was a little anticlimactic in comparison to everybody else, but I wanted him to get his due. You know, I wanted him to have to confront, you know, cause he, he's the only one who's been on both sides of this, you know? Yeah. Certainly there was so, definitely meat there that they didn't find. Yes, exactly. Good. That's a way to put it. I don't yeah. know. Um, um, but overall I totally, I, I thought the uh, ensemble cast was pretty good and you know, I was definitely on board with all of them. Yeah. And it, I mean, obviously it does, it goes without saying it's so refreshing to see an ensemble that's entirely multicultural. Um, yeah. Weren't enough women, um, but we're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> so we're getting closer and that's what matters, I suppose. Um, but it, that was really refreshing. I, we talked about this a little bit in the last installment cause I don't understand John Boyega doing the American accent, but I loved that everybody had their own accents. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and here was the first one, at least that I can think of where there were accents that what that meant wasn't just British or American. That meant people from all over the place, which I thought was pretty yeah, cool because totally. it does it, the idea of everyone getting to keep their own accents does feel a little strange when that means that everybody's either British or American. That feels like a commentary somehow. Like this culture is based out of, you know how in Firefly it's like half Chinese, half something else. Yeah, sort of. I've, I, uh, this is going to sound crazy. I haven't seen all of Firefly. I've seen a few episodes. Which is crazy. There's only 13 yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, you should watch Firefly. It's great. Um, Everybody's I, insane, man. <laughs> I know. But don't listen to them that much because then your expectations won't Because it's a really old show now and a lot of people who are making sci-fi now were influenced by, by Firefly. So it's now it, it's going to feel a little bit dated, a little bit trite. Um, but it's fairly wonderful. It's very simple yeah. watch. And I didn't love the first episode, but if you keep going, it gets pretty wonderful. All right, I'll check it out. Yep. And there's a really excellent interview with Sean Marr available on myentertainmentworld.ca if you want to read about Simon. Because Simon's my favorite. Um, so I got to interview him, and he's fascinating. <laughs> all right. Um, so then I guess my last question for you is just that, do you feel like this filled in all the gaps and, or is, do you think there's storytelling left between the originals and the prequels? Um, sure, but it doesn't have to be, um, anything that we haven't seen. It doesn't have to like be anything that we are questioning. So yeah, I do feel that it's filled in a lot of gaps that weren't necessarily there, you know, that like for me, I mean, I was always kind of wondering why, you know, who stole those plans? Who stole those Death Star plans? Um, is there a story there? I, I thought that, 
but everybody else, I'm pretty sure that's seen Star Wars hasn't, you know, who cares? Just watch it. Um, and for that, I thought Star Wars A New Hope and the original trilogy were pretty complete in their own right. Um, I don't think we necessarily need to explore the area between episode three and four anymore. I think it's kind of been beaten to death and it's going to be beaten to death even further when the Han Solo movie comes out in two years, which is going to be terrible, I think. Oh, is whatever. that where it's set? Excuse me? It's set in the same time period. I guess it would have to be. <laughs> it's it's young Han Solo, right? Right. So just guess, I guess just before four is what makes sense. Yeah. So it's going to have to be between three and four. Um, but, and, and Donald Glover's Lando, right? Yes. So, which was inevitable, right? Yeah. It's the only person that can maybe pull off Lando. Well, no, there was a kid. Said, there was a kid. I don't know his name, but the guy who was in Everybody Wants Some which was set in the, in like 1980. So he had those sideburns. It was just, I don't know. He would have been great, but yeah, no, Donald Glover is okay, the only choice, but I don't know. I really like Alden Ehrenreich. I think he's exactly the right choice. Um, he's, he doesn't have that brattiness that a lot of the sort of young charismatic potential Harrison Fordy type guys have. And he feels like an old timey movie star. I think he's going to be good. So I'm I'm definitely going to see it. I'm definitely going to give it a shot. Um, I just think from conception, it is kind of a a flawed idea because um, we know what's going to happen. Like we know Han Solo and Lando are going to survive and they need to start introducing really important good characters that they would have to kill off because they're not in Han Solo's life anymore. Right. Um, That's true. But, and any Whatever and any like romance this. plots or anything are going to be totally undermined by Leia and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So we already know that it's not it's not really fresh meat to use your analogy. It's it, this on the other hand was because this allowed us to introduce a whole new cast and yeah, we got to see them get killed off. But it, it was kind of like it filled in a lot of gaps that I didn't even realize were there, as I'm sure a lot of other people didn't. And in and, retrospect, we should have known they were going to die. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, but I was I was I was always afraid that somebody would survive, like the droid would survive, or something like that. But no, they killed everybody, and that is a really really bold move, as I said earlier, for a, a series like this, or for a Star Wars movie like this to do, or especially a Disney movie. Yeah, but you that do have great. to keep in mind that that's logistics. That they, they there's no way of putting one of these characters into the A New Hope. Although I would not put it past them to like release a new special edition Blu-ray with somebody like CGI'd in. Yeah, uh, yeah, but, they're gonna, exactly. They're gonna they're gonna CGI somebody and they're gonna retcon everything. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, no, we're past the George Lucas era. I don't think I don't <laughs> think uh, we're gonna have to retcon too much. But you don't you don't see someday in the far distant future uh, them releasing a box set of all of the movies to date where everything has been remastered so that like everybody's walking around in the background to prove that they existed no i well i mean honestly i really hope they don't then they might they might you're right but i hope they don't because like i think one thing disney's been doing recently is they've been listening to the fan base they've been listening to what they've been trying really hard to listen to create what people want to see and i I had my fair share of issues with the Force Awakens. I didn't think it needed to be. I didn't think it needed to be made the way it was made. And almost all of the problems I've had with the Force Awakens have been alleviated by Rogue One. And I think you're the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're at least doing something right. There's something for everybody. Um, for them to go like back and have to retcon stuff over and over again, that's what got George Lucas hated to begin with. You know the um, you know the thing that he did. Um, not Han shot first. That was bad, but. Mm-hmm. 
um, there was an actor named Sebastian Shaw who played old Anakin Skywalker in Return of the Jedi. He shows up for about 10 seconds at the very end uh, as a force ghost, right? Okay. You with me? Um, George Lucas in the, I think, 2005 or six, like, uh, um, like box, like the blue, the DVD, the DVD disc, mm-hmm. he, he mapped, he, he replaced, um, Sebastian Shaw's force ghost with Hayden Christensen's <laughs> he had a map, he had to match the prequels and people flipped out over that. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of a shitty thing to do to the guy's memory, you know, and it's like to, to the actor who died, yeah. you know? Well, I also think it it really is okay to have the same character be played by multiple actors for logistics purposes. And with this whole Peter Cushing thing, that's never going to happen ever again. Yeah. Like unless, unless it is like a, a, a situation like Jedi to the prequels where, you know, someone showed a photo of someone in one, in, in a movie that was made 20 years earlier and now they're having to cast a real movie star uh, you know, but even then I could see them messing with it, you know, the way that like Looper had crazy makeup to try and make Joseph Gordon-Levitt yeah, look like Gordon Bruce Willis. Yeah. Like they're doing yeah. all these crazy things and just like let us suspend our disbelief. That's what we're here for. Like I'm believing in lightsabers. I can believe in other things too. <laughs> That's a good point. I don't know. I honestly – though the last – I mean the last five minutes of this movie, uh, they gave me chills for for – like the reasons you just described, like I love seeing Carrie Fisher at like age 19 again and deliver the last line of the movie and then they just rock it off. You know, oh. that was great. I got to tell you, you Andrew, like I saw it yesterday with her in the hospital and I woke up today and read that she was gone. And I just, I, I, the timing and the, the fact that she should like young her showed up and had that line. And like, I'm sort of morally opposed to this idea of putting people in, in the movie who, who didn't record something for the movie and, and like the, the computer CGI people. But I just, Oh my God, that particular moment at this particular moment was just a little too much for me. It like broke my heart into a thousand pieces. Well, do you think it was a good, do you think it was a good last scene at least? Um, regardless of current situations. Well, yeah, I think it was made better by the current situation. I I mean, harder, but better. Like, I think it resonated more. Um, I mean, yeah, it was very impactful. And if you're going to go right up against A New Hope, that is the thing to do. I just don't, I just think that it's a weird reality we're living in where they can do that. I just don't think that that's a good use of our technology. That said, they deployed it effectively. It was really cool. Um, yeah. I knew it was coming, unfortunately, but it's, uh, it was very cool. It would have been neat to see it in theaters, like with people not spoiled yet, but just, just the nature of just the timing of it. I just, Oh my God, Carrie Fisher. I know it sucks. So now I was really... she, was she going to be in, was she supposed to be in episode eight? She, I think she is in episode eight. I think she's done filming episode eight. Oh, so I think episode eight is going to be okay. The question is if she, I, I don't know anything about episode eight yet. Um, the question is, does she die in episode eight? Does Princess Leia die off in episode eight? I doubt um, it because they just killed Han, so that that feels like overkill. Maybe, but then again, you kind of got to get rid of, you know, her and Mark Hamill are still left, and like they have targets on them. We need to let, you know, the kids. You, we got to kind of take the training wheels off, you know, for uh, you know, new Jedi like Rey, etc. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if they did have plans to kill off. Um, Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker at some point in the next two movies. That being said, 
um, maybe if the plan is to wait for episode nine to kill her off, or maybe just keep her around in general, um, then we this movie has kind of proved that that might not be a problem. Oh you know? my god, that would Which be horrifying. Weird. I was just assuming they were going to do. Like, if she like no, if she's done filming filming episode eight and they and she's supposed to survive episode eight, what they need to do is open episode nine with her funeral, the way that um, Gilmore Girls just did this with uh, in their terrible reboot. Um, one of the the character who played the grandfather had died, or the actor who played the grandfather had died in the interim, and so they just had him be dead when they came back. In you know, so many years later. I think that's the only thing to do. That's the, certainly the only respectful thing to do. Does CGI her in there would horrify me. Well, yeah, that is true. But I mean, it, it like they didn't. We didn't do that for Peter Cushing, you know. We didn't do that for Red and Gold Leader. Like, and all I think all three of those guys are dead, and yet they showed up in this movie. And yep, yeah. I don't know. I'm not, like I'm not a cold evil disney executive overlord (laughs) it would be horrifying i agree but i mean there's a story to be told and she signed a contract i think and i don't want to sound horrible but like well also the opportunity is there i'm not sure about the technology but i feel like it's the the more footage there is of someone the easier it is to do that and they would be working – basically they'd have the footage from episode 7 and the footage from episode 8 in order to cobble that together because they can't use old footage because she doesn't look like that anymore. Yeah. So it would be interesting to see how much they have and whether they can do it. But, man, I hope they don't. I just uh, – yeah, me too. That's icky. But, like, I, we have we have many questions and, yeah, I don't know. It, it's going to be weird, man. But it it's uh, – yeah, it's just another one of those days, you know. Yeah. So RIP to Carrie and thumbs up to Rogue One, I guess, is the conclusion here. For me, yeah. If you disagree, that's cool too. <laughs> I liked Act 3. I really liked Act 3. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, me too. <laughs> at least there's that. Uh, so everyone, follow us on Twitter, at MyEntWorld. You don't have Twitter, right, Andrew? I don't have Twitter. Oh, no. lame. Uh, lame. So <laughs> definitely come to the website, myentertainmentworld.ca. There's new stuff going up all the time. Uh, we're heading into awards season. Nominations are coming up, and uh, the interview series is kicking off. So be sure to tune in for all of that. There's tons of exciting stuff happening. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. And donate to our Patreon. All of our uh, – 90%, the other 10% goes to uh, keep like paying for our domain hosting and things. But 90% of our Patreon donations go directly to our writers and contributors uh, in accordance with how much they produce that month. So definitely check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash myentworld. And donate for as little as a dollar a month. It makes a huge difference. Uh, that's all for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Say bye, Andrew. Okay, see you guys. Thanks for listening.